The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. This is from Master Dogen's True Dharmai Cohen Collection. Rueyan calls Master, the main case. Master Rueyan was in the abbot's room when he called out to himself, Master. He himself responded, saying, Yes, Master. Then he said, Clear all the way. Never be deceived by others. And he answered himself, Yes, yes. Tadarosh's commentary. Although Rueyan talks to himself, we should not mistake this as simple-mindedness. If you can see into his teaching, then when it is warm, all the way to heaven is warm. When it is cool, all the way to heaven it is cool. If, however, you go to the words to see this, then complications will surely arise. But say, this soliloquy of self-approval is easy to do. But what does it have to do with reality? Without imitating rayon and without falling into words and ideas, how do you understand the truth of the master, the tra- of the master that transcends time and space, self and other, and indeed life and death itself? The verse: <clears throat> Since there is neither self nor other, how can there be calling or answering? The nature of adamantine wisdom is free of even a particle of dust. Yet the great blue heron knows how to go its own way. It comes and goes, leaving no traces. So here we are. This koan shows up in the uh, woman con, the, the uh, gateless gate. And so remember that these collections from the Dogen Shobagenzo were brought back from China by Master Dogen when he returned to Japan, and then he used these to um, uh, bring into his, his Shobogenzo teachings. Um, he didn't use all of them, but he used many of them. And so, uh, many years ago, Daroshi and Kaz Tanahashi set about the task of translating all 300 of them, and then Daroshi gave, created commentaries and verses and footnotes and gave talks on every single one of these and then published that book, which I think was a, an amazing uh, contribution to the literature of Zen teachings, Dharma teachings. This is one of those koans that, you know, anybody can understand in an, um, anybody can understand it kind of way. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's ordinary language. Rueyan calls out, Master, answers, yes, Master. Don't be deceived by others. Okay. So, there's more to it than that. In fact, when it seems self-evident, when the teaching seems self-evident, we should stop and look closer. Rayon lived in the, there are no dates actually for him, birth and death, but he uh, lived in the ninth century, I mean, based on his teacher and his people around him, early 10th century. 
There's a story, well, a dialogue where a student comes to him and says, when a crown appears on the head and flowery clouds at the feet, what is this? And Rayon says, a fool in manacles. The student says, when there's no crown above, nor flowery clouds underfoot, then what? Royon said, still in manacles. The student says, then after all is said and done, what is it? Royon said, being tired after the banquet. I thought maybe you once said being tired after this conversation. <laughs> There's also a story that once an old woman from the village came to pay her respects. And Rayon said to her, quick, go back and save the lives of countless beings. So she went back to her house and her daughter-in-law had brought in a whole bunch of snails from the fields that she was going to cook up. <laughs> so she released them all. <laughs> and it says, strange occurrences related to Master Rayon are too numerous to record here. <laughs> <clears throat> but that dialogue about crown on the head and flowery clouds at the feet I mean, I just about, but it's actually very important what he's saying. How is it when you're sitting on top of the mountain and everyone is adoring you, a fool in manacles? How is it when none of that is present, still in manacles? How to be free and untethered? And so in the moon fascicle, Dogen quotes an ancient Buddha who said, a single mind is all things, and all things are a single mind. And this is a foundational teaching, an ultimate teaching, we might say, in Buddha Dharma. It appears throughout the, the Prajnaparamita teachings, it's all throughout Mahayana. This is why we study mind. This is why we realize the nature of mind. When a student asked Master Matsu, what is mind? Matsu said, Buddha. Mind is Buddha. So Dogen says, mind is all things. All things are mind. And since the mind is the moon, the moon is the moon. Since mind, which is all things, is completely the moon, then this all-inclusive world is the all-inclusive moon. The entire body is the entire moon. What is not the moon? This is our basic situation from the beginning. What is not the moon? This entire body is the entire moon. And yet, it's hard to have faith in that deeply. It's hard to have such faith in it that the whole body and mind acts in accord with that. And so the Buddha said, it is like a knot that needs to be untied. You know, it's a good analogy because sometimes when you're busy untying a rope that's been left in a pile on the floor and you pick it up and it seems like it's all in a tangle. And as you go about trying to find the ends and untie it and untie the knot, you realize it's actually not a knot at all. It's just in a heap. This mind, this moon, rayons calling out. All things are a single mind is all-inclusive, the all-inclusive world of mind and moon and calling, all things. It's just the, the uh, compelling way in which our 
mind and senses seem to convey undeniably that things are absolutely separate and distinct that makes this difficult. And that's why we have to practice all throughout, sitting on this cushion, gathering in, no loose ends, nothing left out. And if we leave something out or we try and put something out, it will show up and it'll show up bigger, more agitated. So it really is sound practice to just attend to each thing as it arises. When when Dharma arises, Dogen says, that's the Dharma you practice. And the beauty of that is it's not egoistic. It's not, well, I mean, it arises from a sense of self, but it's not, in a sense, it's not your call. You don't have to sit there and figure out, okay, what should I be focusing on? You have a practice. Focus on that. And then when something else, because of karma, conditions arises, you can know that no matter how diluted that is, it's true in that moment because there it is. And if we avoid that, then we're just avoid, we're just doing the same old stuff. And so to face that dharma, to practice that dharma, means we learn how to practice all things, our single mind. And that's why it's important to pr- sit here during session and go through all of whatever you have gone through, right? Not because that's what was supposed to happen or should have happened or we planned for it to happen. It's all you, pretty much. We have a little of a bit of a hand in it. We being all sentient beings in the world. But in that way, we're not choosing what shows up. It appears. And in that, it is calling to us. Buddhism understands that as the ripening of previous actions. That moment is propitious because if we don't practice it, if we just do what we've done before, then that pattern, that current, that karmic knot gets stronger. It's propitious because there's another way. And the, the ripening of that, of that action right then in whatever is appearing is the moment potentially of its unbinding. And so we hold ourselves, we hold each other together within this silence and stillness when we would distract ourselves or wiggle ourselves away because that seems easier, but you know, it's just not. Not really. If everything is the entire body, all-inclusive, a single mind, then why are there so many distinctions? Why does things seem so completely and absolutely different and distinct? And so Rayon calls out, Master, in his abbot's room, to himself, Master. So, of course, the question that the student has to take up is, what is this? Not why. Is he lonely? Right? Does he not know what to do with himself? The whys go on forever. What is this, Master? Hojin Sensei the other night in Fisatsu spoke a little bit about intimate language. Is that right? You did, right? Or did I make that up? 
neither of us remember, but let's, you, you, if you didn't name it, she was talking about it. That's what I heard. <laughs> Rayon's calling out master is intimate language. Dogen speaks of intimate communication. And liturgy is so much that, intimate communication. You know, I met with a group of students who were doing the One Continuous Thread with us all week. And I, last night I met with them, and we were talking about your talk, actually. And, um, and I asked the question, something I thought about, you know, that why is it that in a practice of the great way is not difficult, just avoid preferences, love and hate are both absent, no high and low, non-discriminating consciousness, freeing ourselves of all of that. Why do we take such care to make things pleasing? Like the altar, like the flowers, like the food we eat, right? If we just need sustenance, why don't we just make, just put a heap of mush in your bowl, make sure it's got the right nutrients, right? If we need something live, why don't we just have a, I don't know, just stick flour in there. Why does it need to be beautiful? Why does it need to please our senses? I mean, think about it, right? The senses is a lot of where we get caught up, right? And so I just threw that question out, and people took, you know, had their responses, all of which I thought were true. There's no right answer here. It's just, a, I think, an interesting question. What is it about us, human beings, that need that, that need beauty, that need the arts, that need autumn. Could we send a little bit of this to everybody in the world? Some people said it helps us, it, it, it inspires us, it, it, it helps us to relax when we experience something that is pleasing as opposed to, as opposed to something that's disruptive or jarring. I said that it also, when you see the altar or the zendo taken care of, it communicates something. This is a space that is being taken care of. People care about this space. It matters. And that care is communicated, right? We receive that. It enters into us in the same way that if it wasn't taken care of, that we would be receiving that. And I've been places, Dharma places, Now, Zen has a particular tradition or reputation, right? I've talked to teachers from other places, and they say, you know, if you want to get something done, bring the Zen people in. (laughs) They know how to work. They know how to clean a kitchen. (laughs) You know, in, in places of different styles, it's not that there's a right and wrong, but it... You know, maybe it's just my bias because it's my experience, but it's like, you know, when it's cared for. And, of course, that can go too far. It can be, you know, too fussy. Hmm. Intimate language. So here, don't say that Rayon is calling out to someone. He's sitting in his room alone. But don't say also that his calling out is excluding anyone. So what is it? Communication matters. You know, we know that. The Buddha 
knew that profoundly. And the Ten Wholesome Actions, which is sort of our the you know, predecessor to our great precepts, four of those ten relate to language. He said there's false speech. He said herein someone avoids to not to practice right speech. He says someone avoids false speech, abstains from it, speaks the truth, is devoted to the truth, is reliable, is worthy of confidence, is not a deceiver of people. Think how important those qualities are. To be reliable, I can rely on you. I can have confidence in what you say. Trust that you are not deceiving me. We see how important that is because we see it not happening. And we see that as signs of a deep, deep illness. And so he spoke of false speech, speaking true words. And in the Mahayana, out of compassion and reverence for life, sometimes sticking to that, making that a rule, becomes not compassionate. And so in the Lotus Sutra with the burning house parable, where the father lies to the children and says, I've got these great carriages out here for you, which are, you know, metaphors for the, the, the vehicles, Dharma vehicles. And then when they all get out and they're saved, the Buddha asks at the end of that parable, did the father commit a, 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 a lie? And the disciple says, no. They spoke falsely and correctly in order to save the children, because they couldn't get the children out otherwise. So it's, it's a, to be understood in that way in the Mahayana tradition. Harsh speech is to speak in such a way that is, causes harm and wants to cause harm. So the Buddha says, avoid harsh language, abstain from it, speak such words that are gentle and soothing to the ear, loving, such words as go to the heart and are courteous and friendly and agreeable to many. And so when we need to speak directly or firmly in a way that is difficult, perhaps to say difficult to hear, difficult to be heard, what makes that not harsh speech is that the intention is not to hurt anyone. It's not to cause harm. It's actually to alleviate that. And so again, in the Mahayana, these are seen as not rigid rules, but holding closely to our understanding of what our intention is. Divisive speech, slanderous speech. One avoids slanderous speech and abstains from it. We speak in a way that unites those that are divided. And those that are united, we encourage. We try to gladden, speak in a way that gladdens people's hearts, that they delight in and rejoice and brings them together. And then idle speech, wasteful speech. We avoid idle chatter. Speak at the right time, the Buddha said, in accordance with what is true. Speak what is useful. Speak of the Dharma. Speak in accord with the Dharma. This speech is like a treasure, uttered at the right moment, moderate and full of sense. And what's so interesting is how all of these four forms of not right speech are burning through our country and world. That's not good. And so how important it is for us and all those who care about such things to be attending to such things, letting our lives 
speak in a way that we understand that there is intimate language, there's right and not correct speech. Dogen on intimate speech said, the world honored one has intimate language, intimate practice, and intimate realization. When you encounter a person, you invariably hear intimate language and speak intimate language. When you know yourself, you know intimate language. Knowing yourself is intimate communication. Know that where there are Buddha ancestors, intimate language and intimate action are immediately manifest. Intimate means close and inseparable. So close that it's inseparable. There is no gap. Intimacy embraces Buddha ancestors. It embraces you. It embraces the self. It embraces action. It embraces generation. It embraces merit. It embraces intimacy. It is all-inclusive. It is the entire body. And Zazen is this. It is intimate communication, intimate language, intimate contact, which is perhaps why it's so difficult. (laughs) Right? Because that's not usually where we start. This kind of intimacy. Close, inseparable, facing whatever arises, not turning away. And so how fitting is it that we start with something so simple, so familiar, yet not yet intimate like your breath? Right? There's no confrontation here. There's no problem that needs to be worked out. It's just your breath, just breathing. Intimate action is not known by self or other, but the intimate self alone knows it. And this, in a sense, is what realization is. The intimate self alone knows it at the same moment that it is not known by self or other. And that's why we're not going to figure this out. No matter how clever the thoughts, the language, you can make a graph, you can use mathematics, use whatever you want. You're not going to figure it out. It's not of that. I was, I've been reading about, rereading a book actually called Beyond Words about um, the, uh, what animals think and feel, I think is the subtitle. <laughs> and there's a lot of, by Carl Safina, and there's a lot of acknowledgement about how precarious, you know, the sort of anthropomorphizing and projecting human assumptions into animals. But he also makes the case for how, sort of within the scientific realm, that was so strictly held to that sometimes it was just ludicrous. You know, that if you're seeing dogs do something that looks like play, they're probably playing. (laughs) Right? You know, so that strict sort of we cannot imagine that anything that we experience is happening over there. Um, but he talks, he talks about different groups of, of animals, but I wanted to speak a little bit about elephants because it talks about sort of on the subject of intimate language. He says elephants, he talks a lot about the, the sounds that elephants make in this whole vast range of sounds. 
He said, elephant song spans 10 octaves. I can't even, I mean, from subsonic rumbles to trumpets, about eight hertz to about 10,000 hertz. It's quite a span. Studies with instruments that can shift very low sounds up into the range of human hearing show that if elephants are excited enough that they stream um, from their temple glands, that, that that means they're vocalizing. It's just that often their rumbles, though loud, are at such a low frequency we can't hear them. Their low frequency rumbles create waves, not only through the air, but also across the ground. Elephants can hear rumbles inaudible to humans over distances of miles. Their great sensitivity to low frequencies derives from their ear structures. Bone con conduction, that's the bone um, absorbing vibrations, and special nerve endings that make their toes, feet, and trunk tip extremely sensitive to vibration. So it puts a whole spin on Dongshan's here with the eyes, right? <laughs> here with your toes. Hmm. So part of their vocal communication is sent through the ground and received through their feet. And then he goes on to talk about all the different kinds of rumbles. He said they create different kinds of rumbles with varying sonic structures. And during tense encounters, they have different amplitudes and frequency and duration that are very different from when they're feeling happy and at peace. Saying simply that elephants rumble is a little like saying that people laugh, right? There's all kinds of laughter. And a lot of what they're saying is below human hearing. And somebody who works with elephants as a life, as a life work, as a life um, passion, says if you're right next to them, you can feel them in your solar plexus right in your chest. It goes right through. You can't hear it, but you can feel it. And then he goes on to say, what are they saying? What are they communicating? And a lot of his writing is about, you know, in a sense, not knowing, but clearly knowing that they are communicating because they're responding to each other and making choices that exhibit a whole range of behaviors and, and emotions that are very familiar. He tells a story of a, of a person who works with large animals <laughs> who was um, standing on, the, uh, on a cliff overlooking the ocean and was looking at a blue whale who was a, a very old matriarch and was alone and was making sounds that were so deep, he couldn't hear them, but he could feel them. And he was sitting there thinking how extraordinary this was. And then he started feeling something else, and he turned around, and there was a, a, a very well-known elephant matriarch standing about 100 feet behind him. <laughs> and she also was alone. And because of us and circumstances, they were really the last of their families. And he said, the throbbing was back in the air. I could feel it. And I began to understand why. The blue whale was on the surface again, pointed inshore, resting her blowhole, clearly visible. The matriarch was here for the whale, the largest animal in the ocean and the largest animal living, uh, living, the largest living land animal 
were no more than 100 yards apart, and I was convinced that they were communicating. In, ultras, in infrasound, in concert, sharing the brains and long lives, understanding the pain of high investment in a few precious offspring, aware of the importance and the pleasure of complex society, these rare and lovely great ladies were commiserating over the back fence of this rocky Cape shore, female to female, matriarch to matriarch. He said, I turned and walked away. This was no place for a mere man. Hmm. He also tells a story of a, a, a man in Africa who devoted his whole life to rescuing um, orphaned elephants, his babies, because their mothers had been shot, or, and, um, and raising them. <clears throat> when he died, he died of a heart attack, and when he died, a day or two later, several families of the elephants he had saved just showed up. And that they had been living, you know, miles away. So how do we explain that? Do we need to explain that? Do we need to explain beauty, intimate communication, what it is to be alive? We don't necessarily need to explain it, but if we don't recognize it, if we don't gain understanding, and there are many kinds of understanding, then it, we can continue to live in a world that seems bereft of such wonder. We can live in a world in which such living organisms that have their own worlds and families and lives and communication don't exist for us. And we will replace what they are with our projection of what we think they are. And that's not good. To actualize, to make real, to bring forth, to live this dharma. And so Rayan calls out master. This is swallowing three or four. This is in swallowing the moon, the moon is brought forth. The moon is actualized. Then Rayan answers, yes, master. This is spitting out seven and eight. In spitting out, the moon is brought forth. The moon is actualized. So this is actually a, a much more subtle koan than we might think, to enter into that calling, master. Dogen says intimate means close and inseparable. It is not known by the self, but at the moment of intimate contact, intimate language, the self alone knows it. And that's why we have to in a sense, reclaim or discover different ways of hearing, different ways of seeing. And so when we talk about seeing, that sense is used a lot, and it really means experience. It means direct contact. It doesn't mean necessarily visually seeing. Don't most of us want to know that we have lived and died fully? that to do less than that somehow is to have regret. And yet wanting that, yearning for that, being eulogized as having done that doesn't necessarily make it so. 
And fully, living fully is usually measured by how much money you have, the number of friends we have, our children, our cars, vacations, stuff. I remember when I was in my 20s and I was applying to music school and I got in. I was accepted to a school I applied to and I was telling the, the son of, I, worked, I was working in a restaurant and I was tell, tell, telling the son of the owner who was this very young person, really sweet, sweet young guy that I had gotten accepted because he knew I was applying, he wanted to know and he was so happy, he was so delighted he said, oh, you must be so happy. And I wasn't. I was a little happy. But I wasn't because it wasn't, the, it wasn't the better school. It wasn't the school that I really wanted to get into. It wasn't the better program. It was hard to be satisfied. And I felt at the same moment that, that I was experiencing, and I felt a little embarrassed, ashamed that he could be happy. I was the one who got into school. <laughs> and it had worked a little bit to do that, and I, I couldn't, and he was showing me that. Intimate means close and inseparable. There is no gap. Intimacy embraces Buddha ancestors. So when we are practicing, and we think that we are coming close to the breath, or to our true self, or to being free in suffering, we should know that we're also coming close to and embracing our ancestors from India, from China, from Japan, Korea, Southeast Asia, all practitioners of Buddha Dharma, and being embraced. And that we are embracing the self, we are embracing that very moment of action, that we are embracing, Dogen says, generations. We are embracing intimacy itself. He says, intimacy renews intimacy, which is very true that practice affirms practice. Practicing strengthens practice. That when we bring forth loving kindness, that renews loving kindness. It strengthens loving kindness. All of the good qualities are like that, as well as the not so good qualities. So what is this, Master? And then he says to himself, clear all the way. Never be deceived by others. And he says, yes, yes. Clear all the way. And Dadaroshi says, it's easy to approve oneself. But what does it mean? What does it mean? How do we deceive others? How are we deceive others? How do we deceive ourselves? I was remembering that many years ago, we were sitting here waiting for Dada Roshi to give a talk during session, and we were standing here, standing here, standing here, standing here. It was late, like late by a lot. <laughs> Finally, he showed up, and we're like, what do we do? Somebody went down and called him. He says, I'm on my way. He came in. He was a little harried, and he said, I don't have a talk to give because that afternoon while he was preparing to give a talk, he got a phone call from some guy who had been robbed, and he was desperate, and he'd lost all of his stuff, you remember this? And all of his stuff had been taken away, and he, there was some family situation, and somebody was in the hospital, and he was out in who knows where, and he had to get this, and he didn't have any money, and could he please, please help me? And so he did. And so he wired him some money, 
And I know what you're all thinking, right? <laughs> How could he? But he, he, he got scanned. He believed him. He believed him. He trusted. And then he realized he'd been scammed, right? And so that was his talk. And, he's, and he talked about, you know, that getting clearer doesn't mean getting more suspicious. And that sometimes you may wonder, am I being scammed? <laughs> you know, or somebody on the street is asking you for money and you're thinking, how are you going to use this? And it's like, that's not really our call, is it? If we're going to give something, you know, to want to give so that it helps. <coughs> right? But can giving itself be the help that we're offering? What we're giving is goes along with it. Subtle communication. To think about sitting in this hall all week while the sun rises and reaches its zenith and then sets and we see the light changing and the air and the colors streaming in, the yellows amplifying the light as it comes in. And sitting here, turning inward, turning outward. What is being communicated? We bring our focus to the moment. We have a practice in each moment. But what else is being communicated? We're in the midst of a sensory symphony. Sights, sounds, tastes, touch, smells that are flooding in and all being taken here in intimacy and encountered, and practiced, and letting it flow through, right? Being in intimate contact with this time, this place, each other, our mind, this season. Since there is neither self nor other, how can there be calling or answering? The nature of adamantine wisdom is free of even a particle of dust. Yet the great blue heron knows how to go its own way. It comes and goes, leaving no traces. And we are like that. I want to, tomorrow in the Dharma Encounter, take this up a little bit, go a little further, and ask about this further. What is this, Master? How can Huayan know that he's not being deceived? How can he be so confident? What is the basis of that? What does that have to do with us? You know, when we think about practicing or sitting or coming to session or any of the things that we do, <clears throat> the more we come into contact with the abundance that we are in the midst of, and I don't mean that it's all pleasant and pleasing and good, it's not but it is abundant and that we are sentient beings. I mean, think about that, sentient beings. We are sensation-based beings. We experience the world through those sensations and each sense organ has a whole world of senses, just like elephants have rumbles, right? And to practice, to be intimate, to close that gap is to enter into or rather be aware that we have entered in 
We are in the midst of that. So let us practice well the rest of this session and let our rumbles rumble out, shake the ground a little, so that our neighbors, they can't hear it. They may not even know what's happening, but something's going on over there. (laughs) I mean, what do we not know? What do we not know and that we are in the midst of? Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.